Okay, let's get started. Uh, I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow here at Cato. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. We're uh, here today to discuss uh, this book, Why America Misunderstands the World, National Experience, and the Roots of Misperception. Uh, we're here to discuss it with the author, Paul Piller. Uh, I'm not going to go through his whole biography or anyone's, but uh, I'll note that he worked, Paul did, in the intelligence community for 28 years, eventually serving as national intelligence officer for Near East and South Asia. Uh, he was in the Army before that. He was in Vietnam. Uh, subsequently, uh, to his long and distinguished career uh, in uh, the CIA and intelligence, Paul was uh, became a professor at Georgetown and a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, he's the author of several books besides this one, including Intelligence and U.S. Foreign Policy, Iraq, 9-11, and Misguided Reform. That's the title. Uh, it's a great book on uh, maybe how people think incorrectly about uh, intelligence and what went wrong in Iraq. Um, on this book, uh, Why America Misunderstands the World, uh, we're a little late. Uh, the book came out uh, early this year. Uh, but uh, we wanted to wait uh, for the election to see if misperception was still a thing that uh, we should be concerned about. It turns out it is, so here we are. No, actually, uh, misperception in foreign policy is, is an evergreen topic. Uh, a reason for that is that perception is very hard. I think if you read the books, articles by our panelists here, you uh, would know uh, that uh, we tend to think maybe about perception wrong. Uh, it's easy to assume, I think, that the default outcome or the natural thing is to perceive the world or events clearly. Uh, but uh, really, uh, we're all captives of our values, of our psychology, of the ideological beliefs and theories we use and must use to understand the world. So misperception is really a the standard condition that we escape only sometimes with difficulty, I think. And, and Paul's book is a terrific and, I think, novel contribution to this field, uh, one that focuses on the cultural attributes of the United States, the, it, how U.S. national experience shaped how we perceive and especially misperceive the world. Uh, here to discuss the book with uh, with us uh, is, first of all, Robert Jervis, the Adlai Stevenson Professor of International Affairs at Columbia. Professor Jervis is probably the leading expert on the subject, having written uh, the seminal book on it, uh, Perception and Misperception in, Inter in International Politics, 1976. He's written four other major books, including The Logic of Images and International Relations, and more recently, Why Intelligence Fails, Lessons uh, from the Iranian Revolution and the Iraq War. That's from 2010. Uh, Professor Jervis um, is, uh, I can't go through all his achievements. He's, he was the president of the American Political Science Association. He's the co-editor uh, of the Cornell uh, Studies and Security Affairs series from Cornell University Press. And I'll just say that if you read international relations, you read a lot of Jervis on uh, strategy, on intelligence, on nukes, uh, on a whole variety of issues. Um, finally, we have uh, Trevor Thrall, who's a senior fellow here at Cato. Uh, he's associate professor at uh, George Mason's uh, School of Policy and Government, where he teaches uh, stuff on international security, political communication, US military intervention. 
Uh, Trevor edited the book, American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11. Uh, he has a companion edited volume, also edited with Jane Kramer, about uh, why the United States invaded Iraq. He and I are also working on another edited volume now on uh, grand, U.S. grand strategy, the strategy of restraint. And uh, Trevor, if you're interested in the subject of uh, misperception and marketplaces of ideas, I very much recommend his article, uh, A Bear in the Woods, Threat Framing in the Marketplace of Values, which is about the war in Iraq and how uh, difficult it is to get people to agree on any kind of singular truth given our politics and why maybe that doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Anyway, um, with that, I'll uh, turn it over to the panel. We're going to have Paul and then the two commentators. We'll have a little discussion and then I'll ask questions or ask the audience to ask questions. Thank you, Ben, and my thanks to uh, Cato uh, for hosting this event and to all of you for braving the winter wind. Uh, this book was a spin-off in some respects of my intelligence work and of that previous book that Ben mentioned about intelligence and U.S. foreign policy, in which I made the case that when you look at the really big U.S. foreign policy decisions like going to war, reorientations, a grand strategy, uh, those aren't guided by or determined by intelligence. They, based on, they're based on images that come from elsewhere. And so this newest book is intended to uh, explore one of those elsewheres which is our shared national experience as Americans. Uh, America is exceptional uh, in many ways. And what can be exceptional, what is exceptional, can be expected to have exceptional effects for good or for ill. And those effects include not just a distinctive national character and creed, which many observers of the American experience have noted, but also distinctive habits in perceiving things abroad as well as here at home. American culture and everything that has gone into it throughout our history is a kind of prism that slants, distorts, and colors how Americans see the world around them. Now, all this would be of little interest except to students of foreign policy if it didn't, or except to students of foreign, uh, public opinion, unless it did affect foreign policy, and it does in two ways. One, we have leaders who come out of the same culture that the public does, they, they have the same roots as the rest of us. And secondly, even the most perspicacious leader, not subject to misperception, has to operate in a political milieu that limits what he or she does. So in sum, the, um, uh, the premise of the book is the American national experience contributes to significant misperceptions about the outside world that can be related directly to aspects of that experience in terms of geography, history, economics, social patterns, and that because of that relationship uh, uh, that can be said to be distinctly American and that have significant effects on public policy. This is what I would describe as the downside of American exceptionalism. I don't have time to kind of outline the whole set of arguments in terms of relating the history and the culture to the way we see things today, but let me give you a couple of samples. Um, start with the fact that we have our two ocean moats, which have provided us security through the years. By the time contact was made with a young United States, with others in North America, the U.S. was strong enough not to be threatened. And the continental United States was almost untouched by even the great world wars of the 20th century. There are some implications of this. The geographic separation has 
fostered more of a sense, a psychological sense of separation between what's seen as a wise and virtuous America and the rest of the world with somewhat more negative attributes. There's more of a sharp distinction in American minds between the homeland and the rest of the world than there is, say, for most Europeans who have had their boundaries revised you know, umpteen times. This especially sharp, dichotomous view of the homeland versus the rest of the world has at times underlain isolationism, but more often in modern US history, the same set of perceptions has supported the idea that intervention by the United States in parts of the world that are less wise and less virtuous than the United States can only be for the betterment of the latter. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, although he was an Englishman, he lived in Vermont for several years, and when he wrote his poem, The White Man's Burden, uh, he started out uh, writing it with uh, Queen Victoria's uh, Jubilee in mind, but he eventually published it with a preface that indicated he was talking about the United States taking over the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. That's when the U.S. got into the colonialism business, except we Americans don't use the word colonialism. We, we use uh, euphemisms like phase four. And the negative perceptions of it on the part of other people, we have a hard time recognizing. We didn't anticipate the negative reactions in the Philippines after we took it over from the Spaniards. We didn't anticipate it in Iraq after we went in 2003, and there are countless other examples. One of the consequences of enjoying our free security with the, the two ocean moats uh, is we have difficulty in understanding the fears and sense of insecurity by other peoples who don't have that geographic advantage. You know, we're the un-Belgium in that regard. Uh, we've used the term Finlandization, meaning having to make uh, concessions to a more powerful neighbor, as a dirty word. It came up during the Cold War in the 1950s and then in the 1980s. We have shown an insufficient appreciation for lesser countries to have to accommodate the needs of, of neighbors. Uh, we didn't anticipate uh, the rapprochement of Iraq with Iran after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. Um, so, uh, likewise, there has been insufficient appreciation, I think, of the need of Ukraine to have more of a uh, normal, not antagonistic relationship with its powerful neighbor, Russia. The term Finlandization came up over the last couple of years, again, in a derogatory sort of way with regard to the Ukrainian-Russian problem. And interestingly, it was uh, you know, a couple of old European-schooled strategists, namely Henry Kissinger and Big Brzezinski, not reflecting the kind of American perspective I'm talking about, but really a European perspective, that used Finlandization in a positive way to talk about the sort of relationship the Ukraine would have to have with Russia. Most of all, there's an insensitivity to how other nations can perceive the United States itself as a threat where foreign beliefs, even among friends and allies, are that US actions have had something to do with antagonism against the United States, or that the US itself could constitute a military threat. Well, we respond, we Americans tend to respond in a way that was expressed by President George W. Bush, who said a month after 9-11, and I quote, I'm amazed that there is such misunderstanding of what our country is about, that people would hate us, I am, I am, like most Americans, I just can't believe it because I know how good we are and we've got to do a better job of making our case, unquote. This thus surprise in the negative reactions that 
uh, to U.S. presence or initiatives occur in places like Iraq, and thus dashed expectations that the United States would be greeted in such places with sweets and flowers. Now, we Americans have also had uh, fortunate circumstances, not just with the ocean moats, but other blessings of our geographic and physical circumstances. We've had a rich continent with great soil, with oil resources, you name it. And it all came very easily. We didn't have to struggle for possession of it. Uh, annexations and purchases were made mainly because of the troubles of other countries. You know, Napoleon wanted to get rid of Louisiana because he, was, he had other distractions, that sort of thing. And the Native Americans were few in number and easily marginalized. And so this led to an American sense that we had it coming. We deserved it. In Bush's terms, we got it because of how good we are. Poll after poll has shown American public belief that America not only is bigger and stronger and more important, but morally superior to other countries. And hence, more surprise and more consternation when others don't see the United States as so morally good and resist. It's also added to our overconfidence about success overseas. We had the easy expansion here in North America. That was manifest destiny. The Plains Indians put up just enough of a fight to make it look like the white settlement of the continent was more of an accomplishment than it really was. And so then when manifest destiny pushed at about the time of the Spanish-American War beyond our borders, the same sort of thinking prevailed. This has led to underestimation of adversaries, especially those of markedly different ethnicities, such as in Vietnam, which Lyndon Johnson once referred to as a pissant nation. And his Secretary of Defense later wrote, we underestimated the power of nationalism to motivate a people, in this case the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, to fight and die for their beliefs and values. There has also been a slowness on our part, because we just don't have anything in our own experience to relate to this, in recognizing how much more common it is in the world than it has been here in North America for different peoples to struggle intensely over the same land. It's been true of many perceptions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, in addition to all the other reasons why American positions on that tend to be overdetermined, there's a correspondence in our history, or at least it's seen that way, between our experience of settling the prairie and making uh, the prairie bloom with the way the Israelis have made the desert bloom. And so we get an American adherence to the notion of a land without people for a people without a land, and American politicians saying literally that Palestinians don't exist and are an invented people. There are other effects, too. For example, we're slow to see resource challenges faced by others who haven't had it the abundance of oil and that sort of thing. We failed to realize how desperate Japan was as it saw its oil situation when it was subject to embargo before World War II. We tend to believe that technologically things can come as easily to other people as they seem to have come to us. This was one of the factors, I think, in repeated overestimations through the years about the incidents of nuclear proliferation, going back to John Kennedy's statements when he was a president, when he talked about, you know, 25 countries or whatever it was would have nuclear weapons, uh, you know, 20 years later, which fortunately did not come true. We have the belief that with enough resources, just about anything can be accomplished out there. Use the Iraq war example again and look at what uh, Mr. Wolfowitz, for example, repeatedly said about how the oil wealth of Iraq would make it all easily. 
The reconstruction of the country would pay for itself, not just reconstruction, but the whole war. Now, let me just throw out one other um, uh, hypothesis in the book about how our history has formed current attitudes, and that has to do with our experience with wars. Wars for any country are generally formative experiences because they are traumatic events in a way. And this country has had a long history, including particularly the century up until World War II, uh, World War I rather, but then accented in various ways by the two world wars of the 20th century, <clears throat> that continues to form our way of looking at <clears throat> foreign conflicts. We've seen wars as relatively infrequent, related, of course, to our geographic isolation. They were, in fact, relatively infrequent in the 19th century. <clears throat> that they consist of a periodic sallying forth to slay some monster overseas, and then a return to peacetime pursuits. War as an on-off switch, a very non-Clausewitzian way of looking at politics and military force. We've come to see wars as having a clear beginning and a clear end, and not just a clear end, but a victorious end. You know, even the War of 1812, which was basically a draw, Americans at the time saw as a win because the last battle was in New Orleans in which Andrew Jackson won a big victory. Then the world wars of the 20th century continued these patterns and added a couple of others. Even though they were big multilateral conflicts, the alignments were pretty clear. In one, it was the central powers against the Entente. In the other, it was the Axis against the Allies. Good guys against bad guys, clear division. And in each, especially World War II, the main threat and the reason for the war was seen, with good reason, as a fixed set of noxious actors, especially with a noxious ideology. Now, we've got a long history with this, going back to the Declaration of Independence and its Bill of Particulars against King George. But World War II, with Hitler and the Nazis being about as evil as they get, was the apotheosis of this sort of experience, which has continued to shape our thinking today. In the subsequent seven decades since World War II, these ways of thinking have been applied to a lot of other kinds of conflicts that have taken different forms and applied to a more continuous US presence overseas, including military presence. And the fit has often not been very good, leading to the kinds of misunderstandings that I'm writing about. The Cold War, as indicated by the name Cold War, was treated like any other war. And this encouraged, among other things, the mistake of attributing a monolithic nature to the opponent, to international communism, which was a central misperception underlying the Vietnam War, for example, you know, seen as a, a way in which Chinese or Russian communism was advancing, but in fact, it was much more a story of Vietnamese nationalism. And then when the Cold War ended, it seemed to have one of those nice clear endings again, and a victorious ending. The USSR came apart. But the dissolution of the USSR wasn't really like defeating the Axis in World War II. Russia's still around. And so our way of looking at the Cold War and our victory in the Cold War did not leave appropriate room for thinking about dealing with Russia as a continuing major power. 
And that outdated thinking underlay problems related to things like the expansion of NATO and the crisis over Ukraine. The application of the war model to international terrorism, again, look at the terminology, war on terror, has entailed numerous problems of misperception. However much the threat may have been underestimated when we were seen as supposedly at peace, it's been overestimated when we're seen as at war. There's been an over-militarization of the entire problem. There's a tendency to see the problem as one of a discrete bunch of bad actors, the terrorists, with an odious ideology, as opposed to looking at terrorism as a method that can be used by different people with a lot of different ideologies. There is a tendency to lump all the bad actors together and to reify an organization where it doesn't really exist. So we hear lots of, speak about, uh, uh, lots of speech about single movements with unhelpful terms such as Islamofascism. And I would just refer you in terms of current circumstances and who's getting into power, look at some of the things that uh, General Flynn, our new national security advisor, has said about this as an exemplar of exactly the point I'm making. The tendency to think in terms of a bifurcated world along the lines of the great alliances in the 20th century world wars has been involved in not only the mistaken viewing of world communism as monolithic, but also mistakes ranging from Franklin Roosevelt's belief that his wartime ally Stalin could continue to be a partner beyond the war, something that a belief that Winston Churchill, by the way, did not share at all, to efforts today to conceive of the Middle East as divided between moderates and extremists in ways that don't correspond at all to how Middle Easterners see their region. And the tendency to personalize threats in terms of specific bad actors, along with the application of a good versus evil template applied on that kind of Manichaean view of the world, leads to rampant demonization of troublesome actors all over the place in which any too-big dictator tends to be seen and described as another Hitler, which debases the currency as far as the real Nazis were concerned and the evil they represented. I leave you with a downbeat conclusion, and this really is a premise of the book, that because so many of these misbeliefs and misperceptions are so deeply rooted in over 200 years of history and physical circumstances, they are awfully hard to root out. They are deeply ingrained. Now, in the book, I talk about some ways uh, about how leaders can help to overcome this, but there are also ways in which leaders tend to exploit the misperceptions, which is not good news. We do, of course, have competition of ideas in our discourse here in this country, but unfortunately, here, the dominant comp competition seems to be between the two major political parties. That doesn't help. It's a tribal, uh, tribal system in which people tend to follow their leaders, and that, I would say, is an impediment to better understanding and a search for truth about the world overseas rather than an aid to it. But the most basic impediment, I think, are the things that we share in our way of looking at the world, despite how we disagree sharply on so many other things. And some of the sharing gets to basic uh, faith in liberal democratic uh, uh, creeds along the lines of what Lewis Hartz wrote about 60 years ago. And I will close with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, who saw this 
quite clearly in his time and still applies to ours. Tocqueville wrote, I know no country in which there is so little true independence of mind and freedom of discussion as in America. In the United States, there is but one sole authority, one single source of strength and success with nothing beyond it, by which he means the majority opinion of the American people. In America, the majority raises very formidable barriers to the liberty of opinion. Within those barriers, an author may write whatever he pleases, but he will repent if he ever stepped beyond them, unquote. Well, I'm not running for any political office, so I wrote this book, and I'm not repenting. Yes. Well, thank you for asking me to comment on the book, and, and thank you, Paul, for having written it. I, I think it's really a, a marvelous book, and I urge all of you to read it. Paul would like you to buy it. I don't care. You can borrow it or get it from the library, but as far as I'm concerned, but I do want you to, to read it. Um, I want to pick up on the, the, the general themes that Paul's talk uh, come at it in, in a couple of different ways. First, I just want to say a bit about why understanding others is just hard in, in general. Uh, talk about some of the psychology, particularly what we call motivated biases, that again are general but particular, I think, and maybe stronger even in the, in the U.S. And then talk about picking up on Louis Hartz and some of the other social and political things in the U.S. that are difficult, and uh, end a little bit with remedies, but, but very little, I, I unfortunately am. Fairly pessimistic. I think uh, 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 important to realize, and, and Paul said at the beginning, that this is there are particular things about the U.S. that make it hard. But just generally, the problems of understanding others, whether it be the narrow intelligence uh, problem of avoiding surprises, particularly surprise attack, but but not only at all sorts of things, or more broadly. Uh, understanding other countries in a much more general way to see how are they likely to react. You know, this is a very difficult enterprise, and difficult even in interpersonal relations. And the one example I use is one that uh, when I was, wrote an op-ed in a Singapore newspaper, an odd thing, uh, I grew out of a, a working paper that university put, and they allowed me to say this in the working paper, but op-ed, they didn't allow this example, which is think of the number of people each day who get who are surprised to find that their romantic partner has been cheating on them. You know, this is a fairly large number. Here is a case in which you do not have any of the special problems we talk about. Here are areas where there is enormous information. It's hard. Uh, you know, we make misjudgments like that all the time. The world is very complex. People are engaged in deception. Uh, nations, even on the broadest I mean, the foreign policy establishments often are engaged in deception, but even the broader things like uh, gauging how much nationalism there'll be in a particular country where deception isn't a problem. You know, these are, are really difficult. And, uh, second level, what I call what 
borrow, what I call borrowing from the psychologists, uh, motivated biases or uh, cases of where our emotions and affect and especially self-images get in the way. And I think this is very powerful both for decision makers and for us as citizens. Uh, we, except for a few masochists among us, we as individuals want to think well of ourselves. We are, I think, in deeply in human nature, we identify with various groups, sometimes ethnic, regional, uh, country on the broadest level, and we any group we identify with, we want to think well of. Just one classic example of an experiment done in the 19, late 1930s, really marvelous. There was a, a football game, I think, between Yale and Princeton. These were in the old days when the Ivy League had real football, not what they have now. And this was a very nasty game. Uh, and uh, clearly a lot of unsportsmanlike behavior from Yale, hard to believe. But anyway, it was true. So they took the, the game film and they showed it to alums from the two, or alums and students from the two universities. And, you know, the game was over, they and asked them then to write about it and rate it. Well, you know the story, right? The Princeton people saw all the unsportsmanlike conduct by the Yale team and vice versa. And, you know, say there was, uh, and they were also instructed to try to be accurate, to put these behind us. You know, you can't do it. And this to, to admit the errors of your country are very difficult. And I think, I don't want to get too partisan, I think there are a lot of things Obama did wrong, but I think he was particularly aware of that, and I think that was healthy. He, of course, got hurt on it politically, but I think this was of some real value and is unusual. Related to that, I think there's a natural tendency, especially when under criticism, for self-righteousness. We see that, I think, in some of the Bush statements, but more broadly about, you know, uh, how can others think these bad things of us? That we know our motives are pure and others must, and if they don't, there it shows that if they're either highly misguided or evil. And overcoming self-righteousness is, is very difficult. I'm going to talk about a third, oh, and um, level of more social and political. And I want to start with the exceptionalism that Paul mentioned. It's very important, very deeply ingrained in the American view, but I want to highlight a very interesting tension that I think compounds some of the problems. Uh, there's widespread, not complete, but widespread joining of two beliefs that I think are hard to square. Well, you, you can by a certain trick, but still the belief that the U.S. is exceptional and meaning that in a way exceptionally good. 
there are a set of scholars who diagnose American foreign policy, people on the left, mostly in history departments, the last refuge of some Marxism, and believe that America is uniquely evil because of the capitalist system. I, I don't think that's right. Uh, but most of the beliefs about exceptionalism are mean that in a favorable sense, but in some worldviews, that's joined with the belief that we're exceptionalism, exceptional, excuse me, but the values we're articulating and stand for and represent are universal. And there's something sort of odd about that pairing, uh, but I think it's quite deep. And it's... Uh, you know, and it leads to some of the things Paul said. You could see it particularly in, obviously, the Iraq war. You could see it, I think, in the example you mentioned, the colonization of the Philippines, about the, the turn of the 20th century. And it's the belief that um, while we're exceptional, others, uh, we are drawing on or we are representing values that are at least latent in everyone else. And in a way, this is a, a touching and a view, a, a humane view of human nature, but it does deeply downplay the heterogeneity in the world. But I think for many people, these two things are joined. In addition, I just very briefly reinforce what Paul said he, he did, he does use, mentioned, and draws in the book on a political theorist, Louis Hart, who wrote 50 years ago, more, you know, or more, six, seven, yeah, time flies, about really the way in which the U.S. is unique from the way it was founded and the way in which this uh, leads people not only to, to see the universal, excuse me, the exceptionalism, uh, but to be blind to differences in social structures in other countries, and I think that that is very important and is, of course, linked to the geographic insularity that, uh, that Paul mentioned. And particularly, I would stress what Paul mentioned, that our difficulty in understanding the threats that others feel because... They have been invaded much more. They do face greater security threats. I believe, obviously, this is very debatable, but uh, that if you look, we look at the deterior deterioration of relations with Russia. Yes, Putin is a thug. I don't have any doubt about that. Uh, and the destruction of democracy in, in Russia is deeply unfortunate. But if we look at how we got where we are, to say the least, blame is shared. The U.S. did things that had the effect, if not the intent, of undermining uh, Russian security, uh, and that it is was entirely predictable that you would get a reaction something like what we've seen with Putin. It does not mean that a reset, which is what we may see now, not called by that, obviously, will work because it's extremely difficult to walk this back. But the lack of understanding of uh, the degree to which a set of American policies really were almost automatically going to call forth a, 
uh, a reaction is, is really striking. And finally, on this, and combined with, again, Paul mentioned this, I just reinforced, a sort of can-do attitude. I think it's un-American to say, oh, here are some problems and what we should do. We should walk away from them because, really, we're not going to solve them. Uh, they won't, we hope, sort themselves out, but our ability to solve them is really, really minimal. Uh, we may be able to put Band-Aids on, and maybe that's wise, maybe not, but we really can't do more than that. That's, you know, not a popular thing to, to say. Uh, are, there, uh, are there remedies? Well, it's really hard, very hard to say. Uh, I think, I believe, and Paul and certainly the people, this institute believe that a deeper understanding of the way world politics works in general is really very healthy. It leads to an attitude that says that, yes, there are differences in countries, but that countries do look out for their own national interests and that when countries claim to be really serving much broader interests, it's often not true and clearly others will not see it that way. And a view of the world the academics call realism, I mean the title obviously was taken for good reasons because no one, everyone wants to be seen as realistic. Uh, alerts you to the fact that often the choices are very hard and they're very difficult value trade-offs you have to make, which I think that runs against the grain of the American worldview, which often is in the words of another author, that a lot of all good things go together. And I think uh, a deeper, but in a way slightly more cynical view of the world, you know, alerts you to a lot of these problems. Uh, so a degree of cynicism is actually very helpful. Finally, again, no cure-all, but uh, multiculturalism may help. Now, there are all sorts of debates about what that means, internal divisive, et cetera, you know, political correctness. No, I don't want to go there. But I just want to say that the U.S. is now, as we know, a much more multicultural country than it ever was much more diverse internally, and it makes it harder to deal with something. But it may help make a more realistic worldview. It may help us understand that other countries are diverse and that they're diverse ways of seeing the world and dealing with it. So some things that are, you know, cause people some heartburn at home may actually, it not, not a silver bullet, may actually do us a little good abroad. Thank you. All right. Uh, good after. Good morning. Um, little, little daunting to um, give remarks when <clears throat> you have to do so on um, people whose stuff you read when you were in grad school, but I'll do my best. Um, so I'll start just by saying uh, congratulations and thanks to Paul for such a timely and important book. Um, people inside the Beltway spend a lot of time, uh, you know, talking about politicians who are involved in the day-to-day -day combat over foreign policy. Uh, but I think the book really makes clear that if you want to understand 
the, the whys and wherefores uh, of a lot of our foreign policy issues, and especially, I think, why we have some of the problems we do, you need to look beyond the day-to-day, -day, deep into our history, uh, at the foundations of, of American perceptions of the rest of the world. And, and I'll start off just by stipulating that I agree roughly 107% with, with Paul's central argument that America is the American prism, a, a wonderful phrase, um, our culture, geography, uh, history, success, power, security, uh, have created a predictable pattern of perceptions about the rest of the world. Uh, and I think anybody who wants to understand the world today better would do very well to, to buy, uh, definitely, and read the book. Uh, and, and I'll just bring up, I think, I hope, two themes that I, would, uh, that I was provoked to dwell upon upon reading this, and that I think would, uh, I'd love to hear Paul and, and, and Bob talk about in discussion. Um, the first is, is this, uh, you know, a central premise of the book is this notion that we suffer from perception gaps. There's, you know, what you think is happening in the world and then there's what's really happening. Uh, what you think is true and what's actually true. And on paper, this seems very logical and pretty easy to understand. And for very straightforward factual situations, it's, it's easy to apply uh, the concept. Uh, Americans thought Saddam Hussein was building nuclear weapons. He was not building nuclear weapons. OK, there's a perception gap. But that formula runs into trouble, I think, when we are trying to measure or identify perception gaps on more complicated or complex situations. And as a, the sort of central example, let me take the question of threat perception, which is one of the, the most important realms of, of misperception that Paul talks about in the book. But unlike a factual question, is Iraq building nuclear weapons, the question of how big a threat another nation poses is not something with a clear answer. And I think it's, it's true for both what I'll call a trivial reason and for what is uh, a not so trivial reason. And the trivial reason, and I don't mean trivial, it's easy to fix. I mean it's easy kind of to understand. <laughs> uh, the trivial reason is that in international politics, as Bob just mentioned, we can never really truly be sure about the intentions of another nation. Um, so despite all of our best Efforts, reasonable people at the end of the day can disagree about how big a threat uh, Vladimir Putin is or China or whatever. Um, but if the trivial reason here is, is the only problem, you know, it would be okay because in theory we could, if we read enough Russian emails or listened in on enough meetings, we could get an accurate reading on the threat uh, they pose and then measure, you know, that threat against what Americans think and we could, we could figure out what the gap is. But the problem is that the trivial reason is not the only reason this is difficult. The, there's the not so trivial reason. And the not so trivial reason is that threat perception at root is not a uh, measuring of the facts on the ground. But more importantly, it's the interpretation of the meaning of those facts through the lens of different worldviews and values. Uh, and what I mean, in short, is that there is no objectively correct answer to the question, how big a threat is Russia? Uh, even when you present people with the exact same information and analysis, such as in the, the They Saw a Game uh, article that Bob talked about, uh, hawks and doves are going to come to a very different conclusion about how big a threat Russia is. They could see the same facts. doesn't matter. Uh, and I think our nation's response to terrorism is another very good example of this. On the one hand, there have been very few terrorist attacks, relatively speaking, and not very many people killed by it. Um, and yet a majority of Americans think terrorism is a monstrous threat, even existential threat. Um, and I, you know, I argue all the time that Americans overestimate the threat of terrorism. And, and I 
you know, I, I agree with all the reasons that Paul talks about in his book about why Americans tend to do so. But at the end of the day, you, and I know this from personal hard experience, you can't win this argument uh, with objective analysis because the threat perception there does not depend just on the facts, how many terrorist attacks have there been, um, but it also relies on your, on your values and your feelings. How, how do those attacks make you feel compared to how you would prefer to feel? Um, so you know, even if we agree that historical forces have shaped Americans' preferences and perceptions, we really don't have any objective way of telling someone how worried about a threat they should be. Uh, think of it this way. American geography, culture, and history, the American prism, uh, also explains why people, Americans, are the only people in the world with an obsessive love of peanut butter. Uh, but whether this is the right way to feel about peanut butter, as I would argue, or whether it is a bizarre national misperception of a disgusting substance, as most Europeans, for example, think, I can't prove to you one way or the other. There's no right way to establish the right feeling about peanut butter. You do, you like it or you don't like it. So the, the fundamental point here is that the way threat perception works, there's no way anyone from any country could objectively establish how worried you should be, how big the threat of terrorism is. And, and I'm not trying to take the radical position that there's no such thing as threat. Um, or that one threat can't be bigger than another. Uh, but I'm just trying to argue that every threat perception involves, invokes a value system. So at the end of the day, the American way of misperceiving threats is perhaps uh, better seen simply as the American way of perceiving threats. We might fear terrorism more than the Israelis, for example, but there's no very good way of judging whether we fear it too much or they fear it too little. So th that's the first sort of big issue I, I have. The second is, oh, oh sorry, and so part B of that though, is, is that, that's the, the threat perception side. The other half of it that Paul talks about at length is, is our view of how to act in the world. And I think this, this very dynamic that I've just talked about is, is just as bad, if not even more complicated when we look at that. Um, what's the effect of our, our American prism on, on the role the US should play and what we should do about the rest of the world. And I, I think the story Paul tells is very compelling about how the birth of American exceptionalism has led uh, to the ways we view, don't view, the blind spots we have, uh, and so on. Um, but I think the conversation, again, gets tricky if we want to then pass judgment about American exceptionalism and its impulse, you know, our, our impulse that, that it gives us. Um, because I, I'm not sure there's one right way to answer the question, how should America act in the world? And how, how should you divine the answer to that question if not by reference to long-standing American values, <laughs> ideals, and experiences? I mean, what other way would there be? And I know people on the both the left and the right who uh, believe in their heart of hearts that the very things that, that Paul has talked about as, as sort of misperceptions are in fact exactly the right bedrock for American foreign policy. Like, there is no debate in their mind that these are exactly the righteous way for American behavior. I, you know, and just because I can point to Paul's book now and say, but look, this is the implicit, often underappreciated foundational source of your views, it still doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means, okay, now I know where they're from. And I, this is not actually easy for me to say because I have to admit, I spend a lot of time trying to convince people they are wrong about the role America should play in the world. But after reading the book, I'm now less convinced I have a good grounds for that. Um, because if there were an obvious way to derive the national interest, the right national interest from some objective calculation of the facts in the world, I think our debates would be a lot shorter and less bitter than they are.
Okay, so that, that's piece one. Piece two um, is, is about the marketplace of ideas and, and how we talk and think about threats um, in the sort of political marketplace. And, and what I want to throw out here is that the, the bulk of, of the book, and this is not a criticism, but just what the book is, is I think it's, folk, it's a deep focus on one half of the misperception formula. Um, the political scientist John Zoller once wrote that every opinion is the marriage of predisposition and information. And so this book is a, you know, an extended deliberation on how our misperceptions and predisposition, our predispositions got formed. Um, but when it comes to looking at the polls and what people think today about U.S. foreign policy, uh, we, all, we also have to ask what sort of information are people getting? What sort of messages are they hearing from political leaders? And on, on this I want to just throw out a few points. First, as Paul talks about uh, sort of briefly at the end of the book, uh, there's the question about how the president and other people talk about foreign affairs, how they define the national interest to the public, how they frame threats, whether they're inflating them or sort of deflating them, how they talk about the right way for the U.S. to engage the world. Uh, as somebody mentioned, the public opinion literature is pretty clear that the mass public tends to follow the leader on these things. And so in the case of Americans worrying about Russia or China or North Korea, you have sort of a distant cause of, of threat perception in the American prism, the, the accumulated history of America, which shapes our predispositions. But then you also have a proximate cause of threat perception in what political leaders are telling you right now to think about those things. And so, and Paul actually makes the, the wonderful and important point that these two things uh, are at their most impactful when they are aligned. So when you have an elite selling, uh, inflating a threat about an illiberal rogue state, it's like pouring gas on a roaring fire. So uh, that's, that's one thing. And the question I think that I would like to sort of put in Paul's mind to talk about during the discussion is how to think about the relative weight of the distant cause or the predisposition and the proximate cause or the information. Because it, it occurs to me that you know, these days, if elites aren't talking about the issue, um, does anyone in the US really give it a second's thought? And my sense is no. For most issues, uh, if the president's not talking about it, I mean, Americans have much better things to do than worry about foreign affairs. Um, but it, this probably varies from issue to issue. So I'd like, I'd like to hear Paul talk a little bit about that. Uh, the second thought here is that at a, a broader level, and, and, and both guys talked about this, um, it is a dark take on the marketplace of ideas. Um, the, you know, the happy, conventional, enlightenment era uh, wisdom from John Stuart Mill and Immanuel Kant onwards has been that democracies will do better, make better foreign policy because we have this free flow of ideas and debate and competition and so on. The takeaway from the book, obviously, is that the marketplace suffers from sort of a garbage in, garbage out problem, and there are no neutral judges um, anyway because you have elites with misperceptions arguing to a crowd of people who share the same misperceptions, and all the debate in the world is not going to solve that problem. And so it's hard to see how what we're doing is leading us to enlightened consensus about Iran or China or Russia, and that's depressing. Uh, that's too bad. Uh, and my last sort of related point to that is um, uh, at the very end, uh, Paul points to the increasing polarization of American politics, something I think we've all just witnessed up close and personal the last few months, uh, and, and makes the very good point that uh, partisan um, politics really can be a 
an important source of, of fuel for misperception because for various reasons people, uh, you know, score political points by inflating threats or other such things. And I, I totally agree with this. And I think to, just to add on to that, I think the marketplace is even further compromised or diminished if you believe, as I just argued, that threat perceptions are based more on values than facts. Um, those of you who are old enough uh, to have seen more than a few presidential campaigns will remember the famous Reagan television commercial, A Bear in the Woods. Um, I could have avoided my entire talk if I just read you the 59 words. I'll just do that briefly. Uh, there is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear? Ah, it's a classic. Um, <laughs> It's a classic. He didn't say anything, but it's a classic. And, but what did this ad do? It explicitly acknowledges that there's no way to ex objectively measure the Russian threat. And, I mean, this is during the Cold War. I mean, but still, we can't do it. Uh, we can't figure out what Soviet intentions are. And if you can't do that, it's hard to see how the marketplace of ideas is going to help. Or we're going to argue about Soviet missiles and troops and tanks. It's not going to do any good. Um, you're not going to advance the debate that way. So what do you do? Reagan evoked values. Instead of competition in the marketplace of ideas, he was competing in the marketplace of values. If you take the security of the nation and protecting Americans seriously, you will fear the bear and do the right thing. And that ad, in a little nutshell, was a pretty good summary of a lot of the debate at the end of the Cold War about what we should do and what's going on. How big is the threat? Well, it was hard to do for a factual analysis of that question. And I think this dynamic explains a lot of what you see when you're looking at foreign policy debates today uh, and why we see a lot of the division and rancor we do. And I also think it explains why Paul is correct to take a dim view of the prospects for overcoming these misperceptions. There's no cure for history. Um, and to the extent that our national perceptions or misperceptions are rooted in that past, it, it seems likely that we're doomed to repeat our misperceptions into the foreseeable future. So uh, thanks again for a wonderful book. I look forward to the conversation. Okay, uh, before we open it up, I have a question. But first, Paul, do you uh, want to respond at all to the two discussants, commentators? Uh, sure. I, first of all, I want to thank my colleagues for their, their excellent comments. I, I would like to just, just touch on uh, two or three of the things that Bob and Trevor mentioned. Um, with regard to what Bob uh, very rightly pointed out as the pairing of exceptionalism uh, with universal values, this is one of the reasons, well, it's basically one of the reasons why I focused on America. Um, the, the prime reason, of course, is I'm American and U.S. foreign policy is what I write about, think about the most. Um, another reason is the United States, because it's been exceptionally powerful, has more of an impact than anyone else's, um, you know, misperceptions have. But you may have been, you know, thinking uh, as you're hearing us talk, well, you know, every nation out there has its own kind of nationalist hang-ups based on its history. You know, the Serbs are still talking about their defeat in the 14th century to the Turks and, and that sort of thing. But I think what Bob mentioned uh, puts the finger on one of the other things that makes the United States different. Um, our nationalism has not been defined just in terms of an ethnic identity. It's been defined in terms of our claim to be expressing certain universal values. And one consequence of that is 
that it makes us harder to see the blind spots that are associated with our nationalism. In fact, we don't think of ourselves as nationalists at all. We tend not to use the term. A couple years ago, I wrote an article uh, uh, in the National Interest called uh, The Age of Nationalism. Um, and I was thinking of the United States and a lot of other places. It's only been just this year as we've had some of the, uh, the victories of the xenophobic right-wing parties in Europe and, of course, the Trump victory here that now we're seeing lots of commentary about nationalism, nationalism. Well, it's applied just as much to the United States, but we don't recognize it as such, and that's, that underlies a lot of the blind spots. And I think that, that pairing that Bob underlined is a big part of it. Um, Trevor mentioned, um, uh, well, just I think he made the very important point that we're not just talking about factual misperceptions and differences. We are talking about how culture uh, influences the interpretation of facts. We were just chatting before the session started about this business of uh, the intelligence community's judgments about the Russians uh, and their hacking and how reportedly there's some, some difference in interpretation between the CIA and the FBI. And, and, and one of the uh, backgrounds to that, as, as some commentary in the, in the press has noted, is probably the institutional cultural differences between those two services where the FBI applies a, a law enforcement standard in terms of what can be proved in court, whereas the CIA consists of intelligence analysts who have a different sort of standard uh, where we can be confident about making a judgment even if it's not provable in court. Well, if that can apply to an institution, it certainly applies to a country as well. And in terms of what we see as a threat and not a threat, uh, I think Trevor's point is very important. And finally, what the, 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 the query that Trevor raised about kind of relative weights. Um, you know, I'm making no claim here that the stuff I'm talking about is always or even usually the most important influence on how we Americans perceive things. You've got, well, first of all, you've got just facts out there, and we do have a lot of straight-thinking people in this country uh, who recognize those facts for what they are and aren't misperceiving, and, you know, God bless them. Then you have everything that's true of the human race in general, which basically is what Bob talked about in his classic book that he wrote 40 years ago, of how misperceptions are many uh, ways to be expected in the ways that he described in detail that apply to humans and not just Americans. And then you have the sorts of things that Trevor was finally talking about, you know, what, what American leaders say. I think I would perhaps modify just a bit, you know, uh, in terms of what we should worry about today. Yes, leaders exploiting misperceptions are, that's a big, that's a big problem. But now we've got this whole social media thing and, and where, you know, fake news is at least as uh, big a problem where people can uh, deliberately put out false stuff in order to get the revenue from extra clicks. Um, those are all, all of those are factors, and I'm not going to try to say, you know, what I'm talking about is 30% and uh, what Bob's talking about is 25% or anything. It, it, it's going to vary, obviously, from case to case. They're all problems, but I think they're all worth uh, uh, reflecting on. Okay. Um, one question uh, for me, which I'm going to riff on what both the comments from both the commentators. Uh, Trevor said uh, there's no cure for history. That's part of the problem. And uh, my question out of that is, but what about history? So if the trouble is history, don't we have more history and, and can't things change? And, and uh, Bob Jervis said, uh, well, you know, if the trouble is culture, then what about uh, the advance of multiculturalism? And uh, it seems to me from reading your book that we have these factors, safety uh, from geography, resource, uh, 
wealth, uh, material success, uh, ideological cohesion, which I don't think you talk much about in your talk, but it is a big part of the story in the book, uh, ideological cohesion around liberalism and uh, success in wars. And in sort of going through that list, I wonder, well, if we have a lack of success in wars and a fracturing of ideological consensus, which of course is mostly a problem, but maybe could be helpful in some ways, and maybe a, you know, a sense of uh, economic trouble, or at least uh, great concern about debt and so forth, might some of the troubling uh, perceptions or predispositions you're talking about shift over time, or are we locked into uh, a culture that formed in the 18th century? Uh, it, it is true, and I, I go into this in the final chapter of the book a little bit. I didn't talk about it today. When bad things happen, that is a, that is a learning opportunity. Um, and it, it can force us or certainly incline us to, to change our perceptions. But uh, I make the argument there that often this means changing certain specific beliefs without changing the overall framework that caused the mistaken beliefs to, to prevail in the first place. Let me be more specific. We had the Vietnam War. Big disaster, huge mistake, you know, there's, except for a few diehards that say, well, if we only held out a little bit longer in the 70s, you know, we could have won the thing. The, the overwhelming majority of the American view is this was a horrible tragedy, and, uh, you know, 50,000 of our uh, own uh, soldiers' lives were lost needlessly. That, that caused some views to change. Uh, among things that it, it called, brought into question was something that I did mention about this monolithic view of communism. And that, plus the subsequent history of U.S.-Vietnamese relations have led people to understand, yeah, gee, it wasn't just a you know, Soviet puppet. Uh, we, were, we were wrong in seeing you know, the, the red paint flowing all over the place and the domino theory and all that kind of stuff. But it hasn't seemed to have broken our framework and the more general habit of tending to look at adversaries in a simplistic, monolithic, Manichaean sort of way. And so the same thing comes back to us with something like this notion of Islamofascism or the sorts of things, if you, you know, read uh, General Flynn and Michael Ledeen's book, uh, that it's all one big conspiracy out there that involves the Iranians and ISIS and Venezuela and a few others, and it, they're all united. So, yeah, we learn specific lessons, but I think the, the framework through which uh, some of these misperceptions arise in the first place has, has uh, proven to be remarkably solid despite the failures. Yeah, you just want to add anything? No. Okay. Uh, questions. So uh, the rules are ask a real question and uh, say who you are. Uh, right there in the back next to Caroline. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. My name is Andrea Glorioso. I work at the delegation of the European Union to the U.S. here in Washington, D.C. And as a European, I must say that peanut butter, I do find it slightly disgusting, but I respect your views on the matter. Um, a question on the, uh, you, the, the, the speakers, the, the author of the book said that indeed different countries, they, we all have our nationalism, we all have our misperception, we all have our history. As a non-American living in the U.S. since two years and a half, one thing that I did notice about American culture, which I do not find in European culture, is that, yes, of course, you discussions always start from this idea of American exceptionalism, but there is a lot more openness, much more openness, uh, to discuss different positions that I can find in most European countries that I've been living in. 
and that's a comment to which if you want you can react. Uh, and the question is, to be very practical, do you think that traveling to other countries, spending time in other countries, uh, does it make a difference? Would it produce, especially with younger people, would it produce an ability to actually think about yourself and think about our own misperceptions in a more constructive way? Uh, the answer to the second question is definitely yes. And I give some data in the book, which I didn't refer to here, about uh, how Americans compared particularly to Europeans, and obviously there's some geographic reasons for this, are relatively less well-traveled. There is certainly you know, far less facility in foreign languages. Uh, and uh, then there is the, as I did suggest briefly, um, uh, survey research that shows uh, how much less knowledgeable about basic uh, foreign realities Americans tend to be compared with a lot of other uh, uh, foreign cultures, and particularly the European ones. Uh, so yes, that, that, that is a major factor. On your first point, I would just refer back to the Tocqueville quote that I ended with, um, as well as what Bob was saying in, in his discussion of Lewis Hartz. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of open discussion, not only open discussion, but you know, intense um, uh, what seem to be clashes of basic ideologies between right and left, Republican, Democrat, and so on. But because that is so intense and because we get so wrapped up in it, whether you know, we're arguing about taxes or abortion or whatever, we seem to forget the underlying consensus that is so strong it, it's taken for granted and isn't, isn't questioned, the sorts of things that Hart's talked about, uh, the belief in liberal democracy and how it's always going to prevail and how it's a basic strength and how we Americans express it, uh, manifest it, and when we operate overseas, we spread it. It, it. That is subject to far less questioning than our intense debates over things like abortion and taxes. Uh, sure, right here. Hi, I'm Jim Lowen. I wrote a book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and the distinction I have is that I've read more US high school history textbooks than anyone else has ever been subjected to. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm wondering if you don't, um, maybe in your book you talk about it, uh, nobody has mentioned uh, our socialization, our education, K-12, which is how we get these notions of American exceptionalism stuck inside us. And my reading of the textbooks is, uh, all of them, is that they only talk about our foreign policy from the standpoint of American exceptionalism. There's really no, uh, the countervailing one that I would ask you to uh, comment on would be maybe realpolitik, uh, which seems dirty and not nice and American, except we're exceptionally good and, and so we invaded all of these countries kind of for their own benefit. And since we don't have any realpolitik in our 20-year-olds, therefore it's hard for us to discuss and evaluate foreign policy alternatives very realistically because the one thing about realpolitik is you know it does say well that the war in vietnam for instance was not in our national interest you just can't make it at least losing it wasn't and um so i wonder if you have any comment about maybe we need to make some changes k-12 I, I would defer to my colleagues perhaps who might have some thoughts on that i, I did not specifically address that in the book uh, perhaps bob or uh, trevor would let me just say Briefly, I think that <clears throat> what you say, although is quite right, I have fortunately not read that many of the <laughs> textbooks, but I'm perfectly happy to take your word for it, and it certainly you know, fits with casual impression. And, and part of the problem is that uh, 
textbooks uh, are adopted partly by you know, local, well, to local school boards. And back to the de Tocqueville quote, if you start adopting boards, the, uh, books that have, I think, a more realistic, in both senses of the term, perspective, this is not likely to be popular, and you, know, you won't be able to do it. And the minor, still not trivial thing, that um, a few states, uh, several states adopt textbooks uh, statewide, and they're very, uh, the big states, the one uh, most important is Texas, and that it pays for the textbook uh, publishers to cater to that market. So I don't want to, I, I don't know this in detail, and I think it would be exaggeration to say the Texas school board has a veto power over, but, but it does have a, a significant influence. And of course, like the point that uh, Paul made, it's sort of circular. The more you have books like this, the more people believe it, the more people believe it, the more both you get the foreign policy problems, but the more people believe it, then it's harder to get other, you know, uh, more accurate texts to, so to speak, break in to the market. One thing, in, in some other countries, uh, when they've had rivalries, they've tried to agree on textbooks. The most striking experiment was after World War II. France and Germany had a commission to get if not a full textbook, at least how they could agree on telling some of the story of French-German relations in the 20th century. And uh, my understanding of that is this was, uh, I mean, there were problems, but it was really a quite striking success. So I think textbooks are really an important part of the story. At the risk of prolonging the discussion too much, I, I'll just say two, two quick things. The first thing is that you can tell we're a panel of political scientists and not sociologists because we haven't used the word hegemony yet to describe uh, the transmission of cultural values and, and worldviews through social institutions. But that's exactly what the process that you're describing is what we have a, a whole range of institutions in the United States, our legal system, our schools, our media, and so on. And that's how you take ideas that were born two or 300 years ago and implant them in the minds of young people today. Uh, but what I would also say there is that there is inevitable decay. Uh, it, it, that doesn't just come uh, automatically. You have to renew the effort to socialize the next generation. And, and Bob mentioned in his comments earlier that you know, America is changing. And, uh, and so the ability of the sort of previous practices to keep indoctrinating young people into the American exceptionalist worldview is, is a hypothesis, not a certainty. Uh, and there are, are a lot of good uh, sort of data out there to suggest that, and I, I've written a little bit about the millennial generation recently, uh, they don't see America the same way that their parents, but even more distinct, distinct from their grandparents. They see the world as a very different place. And But what's interesting is the question then is, how, how much about America that de Tocqueville wrote about is the same? And so we would expect it to have the same kind of influences on young people. And how much of America and the world is, is different? I, it's funny because some countries like Germany or Japan, I mean, if you go through a cataclysmic reorientation of your entire country's institutions, you can expect things to change quite a bit. And young people in Germany and Japan do think very differently than people did in those countries 100 years ago. 
America hasn't suffered, as Paul points out, through this cataclysm. So we, our institutions are still intact. And we, I, I, I don't do any quick math here, but there may not be too many countries where that's the case. Yep. And so it's, it's an interesting uh, process. Uh, let's go to this side. The gentleman here with the glasses, and then the, get both of you. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Paul Johnson, and I'm a resident Persianist in Washington, D.C. I spent my life doing Arabic and Persian language and classics. Um, I'll make this very short. When I lived in Iran in the early 70s, I would go from Yazd, place where we have all these Zoroastrians who um, believe in the holy texts of Zoroaster, and I would take a, a bus to along what we call now Highway 97 to Mashhad. I would pass a U-2 spy plane landing site, which the NSA maintained as an emergency site for U-2 spy planes flying from Peshawar, Pakistan, to Norway, back in the good old days when we had very good relations with Iran. And the Shah said, we would love to have that site in our country and your backing. I went from <clears throat> Yazd to Mashhad a couple of years ago that landing site is now an antenna field. It's about a mile long, about the width of a, an airport wide. And I've been told by people who know about these things, I've never worked for the government and I've never had a clearance so I don't know about these things, that with that kind of site you could, you could broadcast or receive from Spain to Sri Lanka. And guess what? A fellow named Borges, who some of you might know, told me, well, yes, we've had that there for a long time. And I asked him, now, do we still have people manning it? And he just sort of smiled. When we travel from the poppy fields in Iran, or excuse me, Afghanistan, into Mashhad, we are greeted by a battalion of very, very pleasant US Marines on the Afghani side, cooperating with a group of regular Iranian army, arresting drug traffickers. We do have to get to the questions. So I would get like to, more. to ask, have the people make a comment about what I just said. These are facts on the ground. We are very friendly with Iran. The night of 9-11, there were a thousand people in front of the majlis, the parliament, rioting against their country, asking why this happened to the United States. So that's it. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, so let's maybe, we can get people to respond to that if they want, but then we'll also take a quick. No, no, I'm asking what your question is, James, right here. We'll take another question and then we'll have responses. Uh, I'm George Finas, a former colleague of Paul's at uh, CIA and currently an adjunct at uh, GW. I agree with everything that Paul says uh, in his latest book and everything that he said in the past, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I, I'd like to relate it actually to uh, more specifically to the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, and then try to relate it even to uh, the president-elect's uh, what appears to be an unconventional view uh, of how to treat Russia today. Um, uh, we went from... Ambassador Matlock's uh, position, uh, the elder Bush's uh, first ambassador to Russia, uh, saying that we made a huge mistake in treating Russia as a, as a defeated power, as you indicated, implied. 
uh, as opposed to a transitioning power. And then not too long after that, uh, the younger Bushes uh, uh, looking into the eyes of uh, uh, President Putin and seeing the soul of a good man uh, to uh, uh, the idea that he is now a thug. Uh, in the words of Senator McCain and others, and I don't think it's, uh, it's not very helpful. It kind of falls into fundamental attribution error where you, uh, you assume that, uh, that leaders act on the basis of their own particular personality and not enduring interests of their country. Uh, but anyway, so what's happened in between? That's what I want to get at. Uh, we expanded NATO to Russia's borders. Uh, we uh, then uh, invaded its only ally in Western Europe and, in fact, partitioned it. Uh, and then, more recently, we're trying to overthrow its only ally um, uh, in the Middle East, uh, Syria. Uh, what did Russia do in all that time? What did Putin do to warrant the idea of being a thug? Uh, he grudgingly accepted the expansion of NATO uh, until you know, his red line, which was uh, Georgia and Ukraine. And I like uh, uh, Dr. Thrall's analogy about being as strong as the bear, but when you go after the bear's cubs, you might expect to get some kind of a reaction, right? Uh, uh, what do they do? They, uh, they went along grudgingly with our intervention in, uh, in uh, Libya. Uh, we collaborate on space, and to this day, we have no way of getting our astronauts back except through the, uh, uh, you know, the Russian system. They collaborated very importantly on Iran, uh, on North Korea. Uh, you know, we can go on and on, in other words. Uh, so, um, uh, so we now have a president-elect who is not part of this establishment. I think you can, you can argue that he is uniquely not part of the groupthink that we're all part of, uh, because he's a businessman. I don't think he ever really cared or thought about what you, you're concerned about in your book and what we're talking about now, and, and probably his uh, Secretary of State, uh, of State designate as well. And he's being pilloried, left and right, everybody, libertarians, everybody else. Now you're saying, what is my question? And my question is then, uh, uh, has to do with the president-elect. Uh, 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 he's transactional, but is that a bad thing? You know, going from looking into the soul of Putin to uh, calling him a thug. Uh, and going back to Maggie Thatcher's, I can do business with Gorbachev. I can do business maybe with Putin. Can we do business with Putin? Are we wrongheaded to jump on him like this? And I'm, I'm excluding, of course, Flynn, who's, uh, you know, a bird of another uh, type. But uh, what about that? What about uh, 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 the idea of uh, transactionalism and uh, you know, taking away this thuggish and whatever else, and even democracy, uh, uh, Dr. Jervis, uh, uh, it's not a democracy, but it took us 200 years to become a democracy. Not until civil rights. And you can still argue that uh, Russia is not the Soviet Union. Okay? Yeah. It is much freer. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so what, about, what about the president's elect's idea about transactionalism and still doing business with okay. across, <clears throat> across the board? Okay, so you can comment on that or, or the, oh, no, about I'll, Iran, too, if you want. I'll, I'll, I'll comment, uh, just a couple of comments about George's question. Um, one, I think in the 25 years uh, since we, the end of the Cold War, uh, we Americans have been fumbling around on this whole who is our enemy business. And it's the, the various conflicts and inconsistencies, such as, you know, Senator McCain, what he's saying about Russia versus what uh, President-elect Trump is saying, I think is partly a reflection of that. Um, the Cold War still weighs heavily on, on many minds and many uh, way, habitual ways of thinking. Uh, but then you've got uh, uh, others who, again, looking at this in this non-Clausewitzian way that, well, the Cold War is over, so now it's Islamofascism. 
you know, they're moving in a different direction. Uh, in short, uh, there, there's a strong need for the kind of uh, enemy, you know, the evil on the other side of the Manichaean divide that we've always had, but we've had a, a mixture of, uh, of views and assertions about how we should de define that divide. Uh, the second point, I'm not going to try to uh, characterize Mr. Trump's, um, you know, his way of thinking, except to make this point as a way of relating it to my overall argument in this book. Uh, he seems to me to be someone whose uh, principal motivation um, is uh, to respond to what gets the applause at the moment. And I think we saw that in the campaign. Um, and so I think going back to my, my earliest comments about why we should worry about American public habits of thinking and what this, what impact this has on policy. Remember I said, for one thing, leaders come out of the same culture, but number two, no matter how uh, clear thinking they may be, or as you put it in your question, George, how transactional they may be, they operate in a milieu in which uh, political limits are set by uh, the broader American public and political way of thinking. And I think Mr. Trump, who uh, is, if my assertion is correct, very responsive to those ways of thinking, uh, then that second point is gonna apply in spades. Um, no matter how transactional he may approach things uh, to begin with, and no matter how much his absence of thinking about foreign policy has provided him a clean slate. Uh, he's going to see uh, how the uh, political mood is um, running, and he's going to decide uh, what is going to get the adulation and the applause. Is it going to be in one direction or another? And I would suggest it's going to be in the directions that are firmly rooted in American history in the ways that I've described. Very briefly, uh, yeah, I think, ironically, Trump's basic idea of trying to uh, make better relations with Russia, make deals, absolutely right. I think, partly for reasons Paul said, he and I suspect the people around him will just be unable to do it. It will require patience, subtlety, mixing conflict and common interest, quiet diplomacy, and I don't think if, that they'll be able to pull it off, and I think they'll try, and I think the failed attempt will lead to a sort of reaction, as Paul says, and, and a reversion to Manichaeism, and will be worse off for his trying. But I think he's got the right idea, but he can't do it. Yes, sir, this right here. Early, uh, Stephen Shore, early in our republic, we set up first the military academy and then the, um, the naval academy and the Air Force academy. We did not set up a, a, a diplomatic school. Is it, was that an error on our part? And if so, is it too late to change that to keep foreign policy on an even rational keel? Let's see if other of my colleagues want to address that first. Love it. Go for it. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> More jobs for academics. Absolutely. <laughs> no teacher left behind. Well, but you run, I mean, Paul's, again, basic point. Could you, you know, the military, especially without a draft, has been, you know, in many ways isolated from American society in lots of consequences, lots of causes. You know, could you do that? But we did that with a diplomatic corps. Doesn't work. 
Well, I, I, I actually think it would not be a bad idea at all. And, and one of the unfortunate things with regard not just to the idea of academy, but more generally who gets pointed to positions and so on, is the idea that diplomacy, unlike, say, the military, or unlike a lot of specialties in business, is seen as something that any smart person can do. Yeah. Um, I remember it was, uh, I think it was Malcolm Toon, who was a, you know, a career diplomat who became our ambassador in Russia, um, who he had heard some senior military officer, I think an admiral, say, well, when I retire from uh, the military service, I'd like to become an ambassador. <laughs> and Ambassador Toon responded by saying, you know, I've got a similar ambition. When I retire from uh, the diplomatic service, I'd like to command an aircraft carrier. <laughs> and someone, I saw a, a critical comment about the nomination of Mr. Tillerson to be Secretary of State. I'm not expressing a personal view on this myself. I'm just relating the, the, the critical comment. The comment was, in business, I mean, such as the oil industry that Mr. Tillerson comes from, it would just be absolutely unthinkable that someone would be given a position of very high responsibility who hadn't had the kind of expertise in that line of business that uh, Mr. Tillerson acquired through several decades in working for ExxonMobil. Yeah, he's mistakenly gaining experience as Secretary of State when you should just skip ahead and become president. Usually that's the, <laughs> that's, that's right. the, the new model. Yeah, sir, in the middle there. Thank you. My name's George Paik. Um, I'm working on some ideas about foreign service training. I'm an ex-foreign service officer. But the question is, is liberalism an exceptional philosophy, and is that part of the issue? Um, specifically, um, other philosophies and, and uh, viewpoints that we run across have particular points of content, you know, Germans or, or this language or this god, uh, whereas liberalism specifically says, no, everybody do what you're going to do. And uh, if you, I'm sorry, I'll try to make this analogy work. If it's only preparing the soil for people to all garden, don't we all get invited to become wed to our own trees? And then therefore we have difficulty discussing things like the forest. Okay. And that's something that I would want an American diplomat to be aware of, but that's the question. Well, I think it gets back to what Bob and I were discussing earlier with how one of the specific things about American exceptionalism, in addition to America's strength, is this idea that we don't define um, our identity in terms of an ethnicity or a religion, uh, but rather in terms of these, these values. And it's liberal democratic values we're talking about. Um, and it, it has those other blind spots we talked about in terms of the, 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 uh, the, the downsides of our own nationalism, but it also leads back to that uh, uh, undue optimism about how exportable, you know, our own values are uh, and how easy it ought to be for them to take root overseas. And I think, you know, like the Iraq war experience is, is a recent uh, example uh, that's, that's uh, very clear about that. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, if I understand your, your, your point uh, and your question, yes, I agree with it. And that's part of what makes uh, America different. And it's part of what gets into the sorts of problems we're talking about. Others? Chris. Very quick question. Chris Preble. Vice Chris President. Preble from the Cato Institute. So if the prism is as strong as you say it is, Paul, and I believe you're correct, what happened to you three, or more accurately, four, because I know where Ben comes down in this. In other words, <laughs> why is it that you four 
perceive yeah. these misperceptions? And what is, what is different about your experience from that of others who are, again, with respect, a lot like you, all four good, red-blooded Americans? Well, I don't think it's too hubristic to say, uh, you know, with enough reading and enough effort and enough um, uh, goodwill in trying to get outside our nationalist skin, uh, one can uh, get beyond some of these uh, limitations. Um, I don't think, you know, we're hardly unusual among, you know, well-read, informed uh, people. Um, again, you know, the, the subject of this book is tendencies. It's not, you know, does, it's, it's not ironclad, doesn't explain everything. They can be overcome. Uh, but more often than not, in the political reality and the cut and thrust of policy debate, they can be overcome only with difficulty. You know, there's, there's you know, the, the, the weight, the, the advantage is on the side of those who argue a position that is consistent with the, the conceptual framework that I'm describing but that doesn't mean you can't overcome it. And there's nothing special about us four. Comments on your wisdom? I maintain, I'll separate myself from that. I maintain a lingering suspicion that I might be wrong about a few things. Uh, <laughs> I think we all do. Uh, back there, sir. We have about 100,000 people working for the CIA, the State Department and other civilian foreign policy agencies. And uh, why aren't they better trained on these subjects? I mean, it seems to me that they are as equally trapped and, and, you know, they should be going to the Foreign Service Institute and learning how to be a better analyst or at the CIA. I mean, you guys have a, a training program, so we have the defense colleges. I mean, it seems to me that we've made a failure because it doesn't make any difference what 300 million Americans think if you've got 100,000 people who, who know what they're talking about and who were able to persuade policymakers to make good policy. Thank you. Uh, they are trained. Uh, and some of the various things we talked about, I'd say especially the sorts of human nature-wide things that, that Bob is, is the original expert on, are what is uppermost in mind in designing the training regimens for the people we're talking about. Um, how to get beyond, become aware of and how to get beyond your own conceptual limitations. Um, it probably is true that the American specific ones that I'm talking about may not get quite as much attention as the universal ones that, of the sort that Bob has written about. But I certainly can say that there is a heck of a lot of training, uh, certainly for intelligence analysts, um, that is designed even more so than all the other aspects of the intelligence craft to try to overcome your mindsets and biases. Uh, there's enormous effort on that. And I would say the intelligence failures we've had um, insofar as they are true intelligence failures and it's, you know, it's bad analysis by the, some of the 100,000 people you're talking about, I'm not vouching for your figure, but that it, it is for other reasons. Um, I, I think precisely because of all that self-awareness and training, it's less of a problem there. The failures come from, from other things. Um, but yeah. 
there, 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 of course, back. there can always be improvement, and I, I, I think probably the American-specific things do need some more emphasis. I would agree with you on that. You have another book on that, which is also available online, from what I understand. Uh, not yet. We have lunch, but uh, anybody else want to respond to that? I would just point out that, you know, at the end of the day, I, I mean, my own civilian amateur, you know, sideline viewing of the performance of all the civilian well, and military agencies of, of government is that uh, individuals are usually well-trained, very smart, extremely well-traveled, uh, very um, good at thinking through these things. But that still doesn't answer the question, what should you do? Uh, just because you can suss out the facts and interpret what the other team is actually doing, not what you misperceive them to be doing, you're actually, what should you do about it? And that's always going to be a fight that we're going to disagree about. So if what you're saying is can we train them to make the decisions that I would like them to make every time, I don't think so, no. What the last word? Well, I'm all for, I, I do think training is helpful. I agree. I mean, on many of the issues we talked a bit about Russia, you know, it's something – that people of goodwill can strong and disagree. My colleagues you know, who have studied this for years disagree among themselves. I do think that there's a problem with the military, just talking to a friend, teaches at the Army War College, and you know, a lot of the military training is very narrow, and that's what they have to do, specific tasks. And as the military get to rise in ranks and get into areas where they're going to be in uh, dealing with political questions, often the, the training simply is not sufficient. And sort of it's hard enough to break out of well shared American culture. It's hard to break out of, I don't mean a m military or any institution's mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. Uh, I do think training helps, and, and uh, Paul's talked about what uh, the intelligence community does, and I think advanced civilian training, the people, not that the PhD solves everything, but you know, advanced training where you go uh, deep into a lot of approaches and you read and think a lot, generally does, may not get you to the right answer. I certainly agree, but I think makes it a little easier to... Um, to be entertain alternative perspectives, which really is very important. Can I, can I just make one yes. more comment? At, at the risk of beating the Iraq war example to death, I would invite you to go online on the Washington Post site, and Glenn Kessler, the fact checker, has a column. I haven't seen it in the hard copy yet, but it's online, uh, in which he's uh, taken up that comment from the Trump transition about why should we believe these people about Russia hacking because these are the ones who gave us, you know, Iraq WMD. Uh, Glenn has a number of com uh, qu quotes from me in there. Uh, and uh, among the observations that, of mine that he shares in the column is uh, that on what really turned out to be most important in the Iraq war, that is say, what, hap what would happen in Iraq after we overthrew Saddam Hussein? Uh, the analytical assessment by the intelligence community, which was a very gloomy one, about how there would be a lot of difficulty in trying to get anything approaching a liberal democracy uh, on the ground, that there would be uh, the ethnic and sectarian groups fighting among themselves and so on and so forth, turned out to be far more accurate than the Bush administration's vision of uh, liberal democracy uh, you know, blossoming and 
uh, American troops being greeted with sweets and flowers. I think that's an example where the administration's version conformed with this faith in liberal democracy uh, set of ideas that's firmly rooted in our experience. The intelligence officer's professional analytic judgment went sharply against that. And they made that judgment in spite of all of the American-centric ways of thinking about spreading liberal democracy. And it was the analyst who turned out to be right. I apologize to those of you whose questions I could not get to. We're going to have uh, lunch upstairs. I'll just uh, end by saying, uh, it seems to me, in evaluating intelligence assessments, uh, as is the case in most areas of politics, the real question to ask is the one Henny Youngman asked when asked about his wife, which is compared to what? Uh, <laughs> You know, intelligence assessment uh, maybe is more like baseball, where it's good to hit 300 than uh, bowling, where, uh, you know, pros get most of the pins because they're not moving. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, you know, and it's, I, I think that we all uh, have to be pessimistic ultimately here. It's sort of a wonder that we change our minds or about anything or learn and become more likely to be right over time. Uh, anyway, uh, you're all uh, invited to lunch, which will be upstairs, and uh, thanks for coming.